Hello and welcome to the Storytelling with Puck podcast. We will, as always, start with a story. So my story is called Broken to Bionic. And it started on the day I was born. So on the day I was born, um, I was it was six weeks early. And I didn't know this until later in life, but my dad was told by one of the doctors that Sorry, Mr. Blewett, we will try and save your wife's life, but there's going to be no hope at all for your daughter. She won't survive the night. Well, 46 and a half years on, and I'm still here. Hello. Um, But if you've ever watched the movie or one of those movies like Final Destination, that's kind of how my life has panned out so far. But I actually laugh about it now because some of the things that have happened to me, you could you couldn't really make them up. Um, so most of my childhood was, was quite event free. I mean, I, I was, I turned myself into a very good swimmer, um, was kind of the weird kid at school because I was always the one who was out training all the time. And, um, I even qualified for the Auckland Commonwealth games in 1990. Um, but my first setback, I guess, was, just before I went and I had an injury to my knee and I wasn't able to attend and that was really tough and that was kind of the first time I think I experienced any form of mental health um you know poor mental health because all of my friends were associated with with swimming um didn't really have any friends from from school or not ones that I would hang around with um and it was really tough and my parents weren't that supportive of my swimming they just wanted me to knuckle down and concentrate on my schoolwork so it was kind of then my I felt like my the rest of my life and my career was mapped out for me my dad was the lawyer and you know it was like right you're going to go on and, and study law and and be a lawyer um and that wouldn't have been my choice if I'm honest um you know, being into being quite competitive, being sporty, I would have done something in the sporting industry, sports psychology, something along those lines. But that for my parents wouldn't have been good enough. So I did what they wanted me to do. Um, when I was in my sort of late teens, when I stopped swimming, I started to suffer from quite severe migraines. And they were so bad that literally I'd get one on one side of my head, which would stay for two or three days. Then I might get a day's rest from one and then it would go to the other side of my head. And they were awful. They, no amount of medication would ever get rid of them. I'd be sick with them. I'd have to just lie down in a, in a dark room. Um, and I tried so many different types of medications and nothing would work. And it, it took a long time for doctors to actually establish what medication might work for it and what was causing the problem um and I'll come back to to this part in a minute because you know it did it did develop into something else then when I was 18 um I went on holiday for the last time with my parents and we went over to Turkey and we hadn't had many family holidays um growing up so this one was like quite special I wasn't going to go away with them again and four days into the holiday and I was sitting over the, the hotel pool waiting to get onto the lilo. And as I jumped onto the lilo, I felt this intense pain in my left arm. And literally, I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. I fell into the water and I literally plummeted to the bottom 
like a stone. I couldn't move my arms, couldn't move my legs. Um, I couldn't speak, couldn't do anything. Um, and I didn't know, you know, what was going on. And I, I could hear my mum shout, oh, for goodness sake, stop being so melodramatic because you're a good swimmer. But I didn't matter what I tried to do, nothing worked. And then someone managed to get me out of the water and somebody else shouted scorpion. And apparently this type of scorpion, which has stung me, it was only little. It was like a little beige color one, but it's one of the ones that can be deadly. So someone sucked the sting out my arm, which was very dramatic. And then I had to spend the next 10 days in a Turkish hospital, which in the early 90s, they weren't that great. Um, you know, n- not, not many people spoke English. I was given their water to drink, which was, you know, full of bacteria. So then I had a bad stomach with it. Um, and yes, yeah, so that was kind of my my well, I guess you could call my second brush with with death, um, because the first one I wasn't supposed to survive being being born. Um, and anyway, I recovered from that, but it was a good story to tell. Um, my dad was quite funny. He said, uh, "Oh well, it obviously tried to mate with you because your star sign is Scorpio." And I was like, "Yeah, right, okay, yeah, thanks, Dad." Typical dad comment. Um, and I went through uni. I, I did quite well. Um, I did struggle. I've got to be honest. I wasn't a natural academic. I would have to put in a lot more effort than, say, you know, uh, other people who were doing the same course. But I did come away with a law and psychology degree. And, you know, that was a, a big achievement. Um, but the migraines, so coming back to those, were getting worse and worse. And when I was 22, I'd not long finished my my studies and got my first job and I came off I, I had to get a bus to work and came off the bus at about a 15 minute walk back to where I lived and I just had the most intense pain and couldn't all of a sudden feel all down my left side of my arm um, and I collapsed and I was taken to hospital and numerous tests later at the age of 22 and being relatively fit I'd had a mini stroke and apparently well they didn't know what had caused it at this point so this is when I was 22 I then spent the rest of my 20s on blood thinning drugs lots of other medication um, finally found some medication that would prevent and not not completely prevent the migraines but slowed them down and then other tablets that when I got one would help take it away which was which was great but I was told I wouldn't be able to have children while I was on that medication um, so I kind of came to terms with that. I think being in my 20s anyway, I hadn't wanted to start a family and I was quite happy with my lifestyle and I threw myself into my career. So I did work long hours. I was now qualified as a lawyer um, and it wasn't a problem because my my then, my my first husband, he also worked quite long hours and it, it worked for us. Um, and then when I was in my early 30s, I decided to do my paddy diving course because I've always, again, been into my fitness. So I did my paddy diving course. And while I was doing the, the theory side of it, there seemed to be a pattern. So a lot of divers, they have what's called PFOs, which is a hole in the heart. And it can get worse with, with more of the diving. And their symptoms were very, very similar to the, to the symptoms that I was having with my migraines. And I just thought, I wonder if there's anything in that, because for years I'd had 
um, MRI scans and God knows what, and nothing had ever showed up any problem with, you know, with my brain, which was great. You know, at least I know my brain was all right. Um, and I, when I came back, I went to my, to my GP and just said, look, do you think there could be anything in this? Um, do you think I could possibly have a hole in my heart? Because the other, um, the other match to that was a lot of babies who are premature can have a hole in their heart and it doesn't always close up. So I just thought, I wonder if there is. And there just happened to be a consultant who'd recently started working um, close to where I, where I lived in Bristol, who specialised in this particular area of heart surgery. So within like a week, they had me in doing some um, some tests, and when the you when you having when I was having the test, they put uh, did like an ultrasound part of my heart, and you could see the stream of bubbles coming through, and apparently I had quite a large hole in my heart, and I was really lucky to to find it because that could have caused me you know another stroke and caused more problems even on the medication I was on. So then at the age of 32, there's a theme here, isn't there? 22, then 32. At the age of 32, um, I then underwent heart surgery to have the, the hole closed. But it was incredible how they did it because they did it through my thermal artery in my leg and fed up this little device, which then opens up and clamps around all your arteries and stuff around your heart. And so that was the actually the second piece of metal that I've had put into my body. I had a a couple of screws put in my knee when I had surgery on my knee uh, when I had to give up my swimming and then having this then done in my heart. Um, and actually I recovered pretty well from that. Um, and about, I had to stay on some quite strong medication for about nine months. And then when I came off it, I felt pregnant, which was just amazing. Um, you know, for, being told I, I had a, a you know a new partner we were happy um and it, we were a little bit scared at first because we weren't sure if all the medication I'd been on for so for so long could damage um you know the fetus um the doctor assured us that there was no issue at all and I had a great pregnancy I had a really good pregnancy so then I gave I gave birth to my daughter in 2008 and she is my little miracle um you know she's everything I could have possibly ever wanted. And my priorities then around work changed. I didn't want to be working 10, 12 hour days. I wanted to be that mum who was sometimes at the school gates, who could pick up their child from school. Um, so I put in a request to do flexible working where I worked, which was granted. And it worked well for, for a while. Um, I would have Wednesdays off. And come back in on a Thursday. Um, so I was meant to be working 28 hours a week. And then not long into it, we got a new line manager. Um, and I believe there's a difference between a leader and a boss. I think a leader is someone who has empathy, who, um, who understands, who listens. But this new person came in and just cracked the whip. And I was the only female in the team. And he made it quite clear that just because I had a had a baby or child, she was an hour toddler, um, I couldn't get any special treatment and I'd still have to have the same targets as the full timers. And don't get me wrong, I thrive on a bit of stress. I really do. I think a lot of people do. But when that stress gets to a point where it's just becomes untenable, you something breaks. And unfortunately, that was me. 
And I ended up finding myself working on average 80 hour weeks. Um, I'd come in to work on a Thursday morning, having had the Wednesday off. And I would start at about six, half six in the morning. I would work through all day. I wouldn't take any breaks. Um, I stopped looking after myself. I'd get home about 11 o'clock at night. I wasn't eating properly. You know, my lunch and my dinner would consist of popping to the vending machine and grabbing a Snickers bar or something. Um, and, you know, God knows how many coffees I'd lose count. I stopped exercising. Um, my mood was all over the place. And it, it became like a domino effect. It didn't just affect me. It affected my relationship with my daughter, with my husband and, and even friends, because I'd get to a weekend and I would be so exhausted that I would just make up that I've got a headache and I couldn't go out. And, you know, some of the time it was true. I did have a headache. Um, but there's only so many times they're going to ask you to go out until they stop asking you. And so I lost a lot of friends, but I lost me because I lost my self-esteem. I lost my drive for everything. And I just felt like a failure. I felt completely useless, worthless. Um, at some points, I actually thought I don't want to carry on. I can't do this. And then I made a mistake at work. Um, and, you know, in hindsight, it wasn't a huge mistake. I sent an email to the wrong person. And there was nothing confidential attached to the email. But my um, my line manager decided to make an example of me. And I got suspended for a week. I got reported to my professional body for potential gross negligence, which was really stressful. Um, and that's when I had my first panic attack. And I don't know if anyone listening has had panic attacks before. I mean, I, I, I bet my life that they have. But that first time that it happened, I thought I was dying. You know, I couldn't breathe properly. Um, I felt faint. Um, I just... I. The best way of explaining it was I, when you're in a swimming pool, if you go underwater, you can then hear the muffled noises ab ab above you. It, it sounded like that. Um, and I felt ridiculous. I didn't talk to anyone about it because I thought, what are people going to think? How, you know, how are, how are people going to you know, react to me and think what I'm like if, if, if I'm a bit crazy in the head and losing my mind? Um, and I didn't know anyone else who'd suffered from panic attacks before. So I kind of just dealt with it. But then the fatigue I would get after having one was was unreal. I, I wouldn't be able to do anything. And I remember one day just sitting at my desk and I had a mountain of work to do. And I had this document I was reading and I must have read the same line 50 times. And I couldn't tell you what was on that, that line. But I hadn't noticed the warning signs, the triggers. I just, you know, just cracked on and just you know, never, ever took a single break. And in the end, it, it broke me. I collapsed and I got rushed to hospital. And again, well, we weren't sure if it was another mini stroke or, or worse because it was the same sort of feelings. But this time, my hands, I lost the feeling in my hands and they clawed in on me like a claw, like a proper claw shape. Um, and it was incredibly painful. And every time I took a deep breath, I get a really start, a sharp um, stabbing pain in my chest. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm going to admit this now as well, because this I never used to tell people this, but I will because I think it's important. I even lost control of my bowels and, you know, all of my body just completely shut down on me. 
So I went to hospital um, and for the next three weeks I was having tests and God, the amount of tests I had were ridiculous. Nothing showed up. And I kind of got made to feel like it was all in my head. Um, and it wasn't in my head. You know, this was real. And this was only the start of these kind of panic attacks. They were getting worse and worse and and, and then daily as well. Um, and I didn't know what to do. And then eventually I was told by one doctor, look, you know, this is due to extreme stress. You've had a breakdown. You need to change. You need to change your life. Um, and that was when I decided I'd been with this this particular company for 14 years and I realized I'd come to the end. I couldn't do this job anymore. I'd lost all my all my self-esteem. I self I doubted everything. I thought I was a failure. So I just thought well, I'm I can't be a lawyer anymore. And I left, took a huge drop in salary. But you know what? It didn't matter. Um, because I started to find me again and I started to practice mindfulness and I fell in love with it. I never thought that I would, and yet it wasn't all about just breathing. It was just being in touch with yourself and being in the present. And that helped me to stop. I used to be quite negative. I'd, I'd reflect a lot on the past. I'd worry about things that were going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. And I started to become grounded and realized that I didn't need to do that. Um, and then I went on some confidence course building um, courses, which helped me. And I started finding my love of fitness again. And then at the age of 39, trained as a spin instructor, um, which I which I did in my spare time. And now now I run the studio um, in, in, you know, as part of one as part of my business. But it was it was a good time. And I wish in some respects, not that I regret anything, that I'd stayed doing what I was doing there because it was it was good. I had a, another office job close to home, which was OK. It wasn't that challenging, but I was home by half past five every night, had lots of quality time with my daughter, with my husband, found new friends. Um, and I had that balance of work, rest and play. And then about two years into that, so I'm now in my early 40s. And again, there's another pattern here because this is when I was 42. Um, God knows what's going to happen when I'm 52. <laughs> Let's not go there. Um, so I, t I got headhunted for a job back in the city centre of Bristol. And I was still, even though I, I, rec I recovered a lot and I started finding myself again, I still hadn't dealt with the panic attacks properly. And every time I went into the city centre of Bristol, I would have a panic attack. Every time I was near to my old office, it was like a trigger. I hadn't been able to learn how to let it go. And I didn't know how to do that. Um, and going for the interview um, to this to this job back in, in Bristol, um, I nearly mounted, well, I did mount the curb in my car. I nearly knocked someone over. And I remember ringing my husband and saying, I can't do this. I can't go to this interview. And he said, fine, don't do it. Don't put yourself through it. Well, I'd ended up being early. So I, I parked the car did a meditation, got myself together and went along to the interview and just thought, you know, I don't even care now if I don't get the job because it's just a process. Um, anyway, they offered it to me. I'm like, all right, typical. Um, but I didn't accept it. I didn't accept it first time because I thought, mm, I'm, I'm happy with my life and it's not all, 
success for me wasn't all about earning a really high figure sum. It was about having that that balance of life and waking up on a Monday feeling happy about your day rather than spending all weekend dreading your Monday and then that just again had that domino effect on everything I didn't want that kind of life again um and then a few months later they this company approached me again and said look we loved you at the interview would you reconsider um and I put some conditions to them about flexible working I was honest with them about what had happened in my previous job and they were happy with that so I thought well what have I got to lose and the first eight months or so were great really enjoyed it and I won the employee of the quarter award so I really started to get my confidence back um, as a lawyer realized that you know what it, it wasn't me after all it, the problem wasn't with me and a lot of this confidence coaching that I've been on and stuff had really helped so I was using all those skills so I would deal with my stress of getting into work by deciding to cycle in, which was a 12-mile uh, cycle ride into the centre of Bristol. And I found that that really helped to ease that stress because I'd get into work feeling happy, energised. I'd started my morning. Um, but nobody would have known what was likely to come next. And I will carry on with that in a moment. <laughs> that's, that's fair. There's so much, so much to talk about and to uncover from that story. It's incredible what you've been through. But before we get into it in more detail, firstly, thank you, Shona. We're going to have a quick introduction to the podcast. You're listening to Storytelling with Puck, the podcast designed to show the power of stories in life and in business. Stories connect us on a deeper level, which is why we'll be sharing, chatting about and feeling the impact they have on every one of us. Your host, Stefano, is the founder of Puck Creations and we work with your business to define a clear, consistent, relevant brand which stands out from the crowd. We use that brand to create content that makes your audience think, feel and take action. Visit puckcreations.com to find out more. Before you do that, it's time for us to actually discover more about our bionic guest, Shona Hirons. Shona, uh, let's see your mindset in motion. <laughs> You've already told us quite a lot about yourself. Usually we take a break um, from a story after, uh, you know, 10 minutes or so, but I couldn't from this one because I was so compelled to just keep listening because of all of the different stages. It was like reading a novel. Um, so firstly, thank you for that. <laughs> um, secondly, we're going to come back chronologically in a second to find out what that incident was when you were on the uh, when you were on the bike and cycling to work. But tell us a little bit more about who you are now and what you're doing at the moment. Okay, so now I no longer work as a lawyer. Um, I I think after a series of more events and everything that's happened to me, I decided to to find my why, and I went away. Um, I started using the psychology side of my my degree because I realized that I've always loved helping people. Um, and I would often get criticized when I worked as a lawyer for putting myself in the shoes of the clients too often. And I thought, well, 
that's what I like doing. I don't just treat them as another statistic. So I decided to to go away, qualify in things like NLP, which is neurolinguistic um, programming, um, various other mental health. Um, I really focused more on my fitness side. So I did an advanced diploma in um, nutrition and weight management um, and then went on and did further qualification in fitness to, to get up to personal trainer level. Um, so now I run a fitness studio, which is mainly focused on spin um, and also personal training and, and absolutely love it. Um, but I also run, um, so I kind of wear two hats, I guess, in my business, which can be quite confusing. But the one side is to help people recover from burnout and avoid burnout because I've been there and done that, worn the badge. And it's so important for people to understand those triggers. And then the second side of it, which comes from a, um, a, a later part in my story, is helping women to understand and have a joyful menopause. Okay. Um, because menopause is simply just a natural transition in a woman's life, and it shouldn't be a life sentence. Mm-hmm. But for men and women, it is, and not enough people talk about it. So I've also done some extra qualifications in menopausal nutrition um, and um, fitness as well. And I've learned so much from that, that I've just developed a signature program um, to to help women to have that joyful menopause. Okay. A joyful menopause. I like that terminology that those two words don't often go together. So (laughs) it's, uh, it's good to hear. Obviously it's uh, uh, not something I've personally been through, um, but at the same time I've, um, uh, uh, and at the moment, none of my close family members um, have been through it whilst I've been an adult either. So I haven't, uh, I haven't had the experience as of yet, but I have actually seen and read a lot about um, menopause and basically the the misunderstandings of what's often going on both with the person who's experienced menopause and also everybody else around them who doesn't realize what's happening and therefore just thinks, ah, why is this person being moody? Why is this person reacting badly to everything? Rather than realizing that actually there's something deeper going on here. And, you know, then what needs to happen is they need support and help. That's that's my very basic understanding of what's going on. That's a really good understanding, actually. And I I mean, I will talk a little bit more about that and and like kind of what happened with with my situation. But yeah, you know, in a nutshell, you've you've nailed it. So (laughs) I watch enough TV. I've (laughs) I've learned. Um, But okay, so we'll come back to that because, as you say, you've got your own your own part of your story, and 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 uh, this whole podcast is about stories. So. it'll be brilliant to I think for people to empathize a little bit more by hearing what it was that triggered you to 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 go down this road in the first place but before we continue with the story as to where it it is currently I'd love to um, kind of go back and some of the things that you were talking about at the beginning of the story you know, are, are quite mind blowing, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> so, so uh, as you say, you've had quite a few near death experiences, including at birth, which is um, one you didn't know about, I imagine, for quite a while. When when did you find out about that? <laughs> um, when I was in my teens, I remember my dad telling me. Um, I can't say the exact age, but you know, yeah, he just said, you know, you weren't supposed to be here, and you're you are kind of, you know, you are a miracle, really. And and then oh, he wow. went into into it a bit deeper. So I think it was they waited until, um, you know, that 
I was old enough to understand. And do you remember yeah. your reaction at the time? Do Do you remember whether like you know it was I just? I, think I just I don't think I really processed it that much. I thought, well, do you know what? I didn't. I didn't die. I'm still here. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so I didn't. I think because it hadn't really affected me or I hadn't noticed anything. And I just remember being told I was lucky not to have any, um, any deformities, any, um, you know, any disabilities like being sort of partially deaf or learning disorders and stuff like that. So, you know, but little did we know until a bit later that actually I had this heart problem. Right. Yeah. So in a sense, there was this idea that you were lucky and had no challenges um, and no health challenges, but actually you did have quite a severe health challenge, which mm-hmm. we, we, you've gone on to a little bit more in your story and we'll, we'll talk about again um, further in a second. But before you got to that point, so you were stung by a scorpion and this is a deadly, a deadly poison. And yeah. who was it? Was it a lifeguard? Who was it that sucked the poison out? That su- <laughs> no, that sucked the sting out? actually a nurse she was staying at the hotel and she'd actually worked and lived in the Sahara Desert for a, for a couple of years on a placement and she said she'd seen people literally die within minutes of being stung by the same type of scorpion wow. so they I got dragged out of the pool and by this point I was like a stone because I I become paralyzed it was like I guess it'd be like a snake bite you know <laughs> he, he just paralyzed me um, and I love the she, idea as well because this is there's so many people that are going to relate oh, typical oh. typical family dynamics of oh come on stop over yeah. stop stop being so dramatic get out of the pool. I know <laughs> I know exactly. Um, my mum's my mom's expression on her face apparently changed when she saw the scorpion running away, and then someone stood on it. Apparently, I was like, oh. hey, hey. Um, but as soon as the sting was sucked out of my arm. And, you know, I never got this woman's details either. You know, we, we didn't have things like social media and stuff then and not even mobile phones. Um, so I, I, but I, I'd love to have known who she was. All I knew is she was this nurse who'd worked in the Sahara Desert. But, you know, I kind of owed her my life in a way. Yes, yeah, so she's um, your angel in a way. <laughs> That's, yeah. I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but as soon as that sting was sucked out of my arm, the pain, oh, my God, it was unbelievable. I mean, I was having ice packs put on my arm and they were melting within minutes. And my whole arm just went completely black. Um, wow. So, yeah. Um, so you and had then, a lot of physical pain from that point. How are you feeling emotionally? Because as you said, for the, the first time you had a near-death experience, you didn't really know about it. So even when you found out about it, it kind of felt a little bit, you know, over there somewhere. It wasn't really, yeah. almost didn't feel like like it was about you this yeah. time you very much knew how close you were to death what was the feeling did you kind of get a sense of mortality afterwards how did how did you feel no no I didn't then um again I think I just kind of just dealt with it I think I've always <laughs> been quite, quite strong and quite resilient and I've, I've clearly always been a fighter um but no I just remember like thinking Oh, I want the pain to go away. I didn't really think of the the aftermath, the other stuff, and you know, and I didn't see any bright white lights or anything like that. Um, you know, it was just all I remember was it was an awful experience being in the hospital because it was like fifty degrees C over there oh, in wow. the middle of August, and there was no air conditioning in the hospital and really poor conditions. It wasn't like your hospitals over here, and I just wanted to get home. And then that that kind of, you know, wasn't really talked about anymore. But I, I was, <laughs> well, actually, it's quite, you know, if anyone's, 
we, I'm like kind of this standing joke now. If something's going to happen, well, it's going to happen to me. So <laughs> I may as well just go wrap. You know, we, we often might make jokes about maybe I should just go out wrapped in bubble wrap because that's probably safer. <laughs> <laughs> However, that would probably go against a lot of the things you teach in uh, your mindset training, I imagine. Yeah, so you're probably I not allowed know. to do that. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but so again, this happened and then you had a third um up until now i know we've got more to come but you had a third kind of major experience with all the pains down your left side and you had to go into a hospital and you found out that you did actually have that hole in your heart um and the incredible thing was then because they were able to tell me tell me more tell our listeners more as well about the way this operation worked because that kind of blew my mind a little bit they went through your leg yeah, so you've obviously got your thermal artery at the top of your leg. I mean, I've literally got a scar about half an inch long. You wouldn't even right. notice it. So if I'd had that surgery done to close the hole about a year earlier, it would have been open heart surgery. So it's almost like, you know, wow. there's somebody watching over me in a way because that that's had no impact on me at all. I wouldn't even know that, that it's there, apart from when I go through an airport security thing and I get bleeped <laughs> and it's like, how do I explain that I've got a device implanted inside my heart without it sounding extremely dodgy? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, no, no, it's actually in my heart. It's it, like, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can't take it out, no. <laughs> no, but when you're, in a, when you're in a country that don't speak English and you're trying to, you know that the bleeper's going to go off yeah and then you're getting scanned and I find it easier just to they've got like some little notes sometimes in airports on the walls which say if you've got a pacemaker just to let them know I just just point to it because it's not a pacemaker but it's easier this is similar you know as similar or as close to as you're going to get so I just point to that and then normally I just have to go through a different um you know a different walkway and then have a have a, a a female um you know person just make sure that I'm uh, I'm not that dodgy they do, <laughs> they, do a, they do an old-fashioned scan at that yeah, point. yeah 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 um okay so we, we've got these these huge incidents that have happened then the whole time life is revolving um you had the pressure to go to university to study law to study psychology which you weren't overly keen on um but did because of the pressure because you thought mm-hmm. it was what you were supposed to do you had this f- love of fitness um running alongside that the whole time which you couldn't fully pursue as a career again because of the pressure and it kind of all felt like everything was building up and 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 then all of this past environment is affecting you in some way and then you also had the environment when you were actually at work and Mm. you were forced to work 80 hour days you um basically had no time to be you and just live and do all the things that you wanted to do and this all built up over time and so with all of those things going on that's probably quite a major part of the reason that you had your first panic attack right and you described that really well earlier yeah so what I'm really interested in is what year was this that you had the first one? I think you did mention it, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, 2013 they started. Okay. And so in 2013, there was some talk around mental health challenges and, and mm. some of the issues we face, but not a lot. It was still, it was still 
something which, I mean, it's even now, um, you know, we talk about it a lot more, but it's still stigmatized. But back in 2013, it was stigmatized yeah. a hell of a lot more. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I just didn't, I didn't know anyone else who'd, who'd suffered from panic attacks. And I, actually, that's a lie. My auntie, she suffers quite badly with panic attacks, but I didn't really understand them. And one of the reasons I think I didn't speak about them was because I always felt she was judged. Um, like my parents, for example, they don't understand anything to do with poor mental health. Um, my my mum would often make comments like, oh, gosh, oh, Lynn's being melodramatic again. Oh, she's she's not coming to your brother's wedding because, and she's spoiling it because she won't drive here, you know, and she's had one of her stupid panic attacks again. And it was comments like that that made me feel like I was stupid, that there was something wrong with me. And I couldn't talk. I thought if my parents don't understand, who else is going to understand? So I didn't. I kept it to myself. So there was this uh, this sense of shame almost uh, that yeah. you're it's it's really it's really powerful that because if you had broken your leg if you had i don't know if you had well the heart trouble that you had the hole in your heart and therefore you know, you had to have surgery or you had to be out of work for a while. People wouldn't have batted an eyelid. They would have gone, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's a physical problem that somebody's got. Um, of course, some employers are still thinking, well, hang on, when can you get back? Get back as soon as possible. Make sure that you yeah, get cured, yeah. et cetera. Um, you still get that problem, but you don't get the the sense of shame that I've broken my leg. People aren't ashamed of something like that. No, so, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah, so I think that that says so much to what the for me one of the major problems is with society and mental health, and it is improving. It is getting better, but as far as I'm concerned, in the NHS and not just the NHS, I think worldwide in in care, mental health is still not seen. And in the workforce, it's still not seen as equitable to physical health. Mm, it's no. still not seen as the same issue. How, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. So actually, this this forms part of my next part of my, my story. So I can answer that now or, or come on to it in a few minutes. It's up to you. Actually, that sets us up perfectly. We've already taken the road to near-death experiences on more than one occasion with Shona. We've seen a great deal of her survival instincts, her strength, and her determination too. But there's a lot more to come. As we move into the second half of this episode, we touch on some very challenging subject areas around mental health and suicide. So please make sure that you only continue to listen if you are in the right frame of mind. If you need support, please do talk to the Samaritans, Mind UK, or somebody you trust. We'll get to part two of Shona's incredible story very soon, but before we do, our friend Andrew Ford would like you to lean forward. We're all in the persuasion business, whether that's pitching to a potential client, selling ourselves in a job interview, or convincing a teenager to tidy their room. 
How we frame our message and how we deliver it makes all the difference. And this is the theme of my podcast, Leaning Forward. I'm Andrew Thorpe. I'm a speaker, a trainer, and a storyteller. And I'd love you to tune in to our latest episode. So let's start then. You had decided to get on your bike to go to work. And we'll go from there. Okay. So the first few months were fine. And I quite enjoyed riding in. And it was throughout the winter. Um, so all kinds of weather, no problem at all. I'd always been a keen cyclist, so I'd often done big events. Um, so just just seemed like second nature to me. Um, and then on the 23rd of January 2017, I was cycling into work and came to a road literally about a mile away from, from the office. And you have to come off the road onto a cycle path, onto one of those um, those things with like the, the bumpy, bumpy bits on the tiles. I think they're for partially sighted and blind people. And there was a big wet patch that had accumulated in that in that part of the road, um, which was full of like grass, uh, leaves, and muck and diesel. And my my front wheel of the bike hit that as I was veering off onto the cycle path, and I literally went flying over the handlebars. Um, landed on my helmet, cracked the helmet all the way through, had a mild concussion, but my leg was penetrated with the, uh, well, we think it was the the handlebar. Um, And I had, to say I had the biggest bruise ever on my leg, that's an understatement. This, I've still got a dent in the top of my leg now from where it just damaged the muscle and went so deep. Um, And my, the whole of the top of my leg was just black. It was ridiculous. So I went to hospital then. Thankfully, I hadn't broken anything, um, but I needed a couple of weeks off work because I couldn't walk. And I felt guilty because I'd not been there long. I'd only been there eight months. So the the next time, well, I took that couple of weeks off. I had a week off as well for half term. And then I was back in work on the 21st of February. And I looked out the window that morning and it was a little bit overcast, but it was the weather was okay. So I thought, ah, do you know what? It's fine. I'm going to cycle in today. It'll be all right. And I got to the point in the road where I'd had the previous accident. And I remember just before that checking my helmet because I had a new bike, I had a new helmet, everything. Um, and I don't remember anything else. The next thing I remember is literally about half an hour later, waking up in an ambulance. Um completely disorientated at first my first thought was that oh my god I've really hurt my fingers um and I thought I'd broken my fingers and there was a little bit of blood coming from from my face um but again I hadn't seen my face so I didn't really know what you know what what that was about and I was in and out of consciousness and got into the hospital and in in and out of consciousness I had various scans and then my husband came to the hospital and I remember seeing his face and he was just like a look of shock, horror on his face. Um, and the consultant came out a couple of hours later and he said, uh, we've, we've got good and bad news. He said, the good news is, is you haven't broken your fingers. And I'm there looking at my fingers going, what, what the hell? They really hurt. Um, but he said, the bad news is, is you've, um, you've broken all of the bones around your orbital area. You've completely smashed your, your cheekbone to pieces you've broken your jaw and you've got a fracture at the base of your skull um we need to do some more tests because you might lose your sight in your left eye 
Um, and we're going to have to place you in an induced coma for two weeks to wait for the swelling to go down before we can operate. And before they put me into the coma, I said to my husband, can I have a look in a mirror? And he reluctantly gave me this mirror and you could just see this hole here above my eyebrow. You could literally see right through to my gut, to my skull. Um, and this was kind of, from everything I've been through, this was the first time I think that I was scared that, you know, I'm like, oh my God, what's, what's going to happen to me? Um, I was told I had a 20% chance of survival, um, that my recovery would be long and slow. There would be certain things I would never be able to do again because of the swelling on my, on my brain and the amount of pressure. So two weeks later, I was taken out of the induced coma and I had major facial reconstructive surgery. So the whole of the left side of my face has been completely rebuilt with titanium pins plates screws um but on the on the on the plus side i had a free facelift on the nhs at the age of 40 <laughs> you know, it's not all bad um but that that was that was became a quite a dark point in my life i guess because i was enjoying my job um and I started to realize when I started to recover, I mean, when I had a drain sticking out of my head for ages, my, my daughter who was eight at the time, she wasn't allowed to be with me because it was too scary for her. And I was just so poorly. I couldn't eat properly for about four months. I could only drink smoothies and soup through a straw because of the way my jaw had been pinned back together. Um, I was partially sighted now in my left eye. I'd lost my hearing in my left ear, so I couldn't, you know, hardly hear anything. I did have more surgery a year later, which which healed that. Um, but I realized that all my hobbies related to some form of fitness, you know, whether it was going for a walk, whether it was climbing a mountain or going for a run or spin class, I didn't, I didn't have anything else. So I, I started to have to think outside the box and adapt. And I think this is why I've coped so well with lockdown, to be honest, because I kind of experienced my version of lockdown four years ago. And I taught myself how to play the guitar on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and that was that was great. My daughter learned with me. Um, I started, I learned how to crochet. And I'm the most uncreative person in the world, right? I can't even sew a button on without it falling off 20 seconds later. But I, I started making hats. And it was also really therapeutic and it was a form of mindfulness, which I really enjoyed. So I'd say that to anyone, if you've never tried something before and don't know if you're going to enjoy it, just give it a go because you might actually really like it and be good mm. at it. Um, but for four months, I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't do anything. And I was in and out of hospital throughout. And I only actually took six months off work because, again, I felt pressure to go back and I was waiting to see numerous consultants. I had to have lots more tests done because I was told I had a moderate brain injury. And when I went back to work, I had to have all of my work checked. I had to have all my calls checked, all my written work checked. And I felt, to be honest, micromanaged because nothing I did was, was good enough. Um, my line manager and, and other colleagues were great while I was off. Don't get me wrong. And this is where it, I, I guess the difference between mental and physical health comes in because they would be coming out to see me, sending me gifts, cards, flowers, messages, of support. And I felt like I was really supported. I felt like I was working for a good company. But when I went back, 
all I was asked of all the time is, when are we going to get the old Shona back? Why can't you hear what people are saying to you on the phone? Oh, are, you know, the targets you've got, the KPIs, they're not being met because you're having to ask clients to repeat themselves on the phone. Um, and I'd asked them for when I went back, I asked them if I could have um, uh, an earpiece mm-hmm. for to do my calls because we were wearing headsets. And having had 60 stitches and staples around my hairline, I just thought I cannot wear a headrest on top of my head for eight, nine hours a day. So I was assured that was going to be done and it wasn't. And then I was expected to just pick up the the actual main phone and rest it between my ear and my shoulder whilst talking to clients and making notes when I was still having physio for the fracture at the base of my skull. And then I was just getting told, oh, you know, you're you're not performing well enough. You're not doing well enough. And then eventually I was diagnosed with episodic depression, um, which was as a result of the accident and the, and the stress at work. And as soon as my line manager saw that, she called me in for a meeting and said, we've got real concerns about your additional diagnosis of mental health on top of your physical injuries. So we're going to give you some options. Um, we're either going to put you on a performance improvement plan and unless you're recovered within a month you'll have to face disciplinary action or you can go on an unpaid sabbatical until you're better or you can leave well sorry to interrupt so you told your company that you had a medical diagnosis of depression yeah and they disciplined you yeah okay sorry keep going with the story i just needed Uh, to clarify uh, that to make sure that i could believe what i was hearing and this was one of the UK's biggest companies as well, um, who would often have speakers come in and talk about mental health. You know, they'd put fruit in the office three times a week. But this is why it takes much more than that to to change an attitude of a, of an organisation. Yeah. It comes down to a deeper understanding and the way that you ask questions um, and don't just put the onus on the, the member of staff. But when I left, when I walked out of the office that day, I knew I wasn't going to come back and I went to the GP the next day, got signed off with work-related stress and knew that they would struggle to, you know, to touch me once I had that. But during the time that I was off, which was another few months before I decided to finally leave, I didn't have a single message of support. I didn't get any flowers, any cards, nothing. I felt alienated. I felt like because I'd had an accident, I'd done something wrong. And... You know, I even and this might sound petty, but my line manager even deleted me as a friend on Facebook. You know, that might sound ridiculous, but again, in your own head, you're like, well, what have I done? It would only sound ridiculous if that was by itself your worry. If somebody had deleted you from Facebook and uh, we were doing a whole episode about somebody deleting you from Facebook, then it might sound ridiculous. But because of all of the circumstances around it, it doesn't sound ridiculous at all. The idea that somebody suddenly thinks, oh, this person isn't worthy of being a friend anymore because they have... And, and it's it's interesting, it's not it's not directly because of the accident, because as you say, yeah. people think it's fine if you have accidents, if you have to have time off, if you've got physical injuries, that's all okay. But the same attention, the same level of care wasn't given to you for the mental injuries that you had. I feel like we should be using the same words to compare. If you call it a physical injury, it's also a mental injury. Yeah, totally. You're absolutely right. And this was where I just thought, no, you know, I'm going to do something about this. And, and, you know, and and I did, and I was much stronger. 
in a better place. I wasn't I wasn't a victim. I think in the past I thought myself as a bit of a victim. Oh, poor me. Why me? It was a pity party. Not this time. You know, there's only so many times you can listen to the same song until you get bored. And this is how <laughs> I felt my life was going. And I just thought, no, something's got to change. And, you know, don't get me wrong. It was I that year, I guess, of that recovery was tough. Um, my husband went off with someone else, um, okay. which was really tough. Um, we're still together, believe it or not, because I've learned how to let go and not only forgive other people but forgive myself for things he was he was really struggling with what had happened to me and he'd suffered from PTSD in the past and he reached out to someone else for support and it went a bit too far and that was a really tough time and I went to probably at that point the darkest time of my life where you know, I felt again, I felt like a useless wife. I felt like a useless mum because I couldn't do things with my daughter. I wasn't able to drive. Um, I wasn't able to take her swimming, little things like that. And and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to carry on with my career. And I just thought, what else am I going to do? What I'd only ever known how to be a lawyer, really, and a spin instructor on the side, but that didn't earn much. And I had pressure as well from my family. So my dad would tell me that, you know, I, there's no way I can, I can give up my, my fantastic legal job that I had um, to do, you know, to waste my education, my, my whole career. And there was, there was a lot of pressure. And one night I just drank far too much. I wasn't supposed to drink because of the medication I was on for my recovery. Um, and I went and sat on a local beach close to where I live and just let the tide wash over me. And I didn't even feel the cold. I didn't care. All I remember at the time is just feeling completely numb and that the world was good, was going to be a better place without me. And I now know that's not true. And if I'm honest, the next day I had this epiphany moment when my daughter was with me and she could see I was upset and that I was worried because I had no money and that I couldn't support her anymore if I lost my job and stuff. And she brought her money box downstairs. And you know, this is when she's eight years old. She brought a money box downstairs, emptied it out. And I'll never forget how much was in it. There was £1.22. And she just said, Mummy, I would rather have my mummy than have lots of money. So please have all mine. And that was enough for me just to think, do you know what? What the hell am I doing? I need to get up instead of give up. Um, this is what I've always been about. And I decided to ring my local mind number. So part of Mind UK, which I now do quite a bit of work with. And this was the first time I properly started talking about the panic attacks I'd been having. Um, I don't know how long I was on the phone to the, um, to the advisor for, but she just made me feel like I was normal. She didn't judge me. And she told me to go on a journey of self-discovery. And to, some, to start putting together some goals for myself, what did I want and what's my why? Um, and the first thing I did, so just under a year after my accident, we had a skiing trip booked. And I was told by my consultant that there's no way you're going to be able to go um, because the, the altitude, if you fly, could kill you because of this pressure, which I still had in my head. So I thought, fine, how can I change that then? So we didn't fly. We got the Eurostar down to Teen in the south of France. And then the way that I dealt with the altitude on ski lifts was to get off at each level 
and wait for the pressure to normalize which would take okay. about 10 minutes um and it was a bit frustrating but i loved it and by the end of that first week having never skied before i was racing and wow you know absolutely loved it and then i thought oh i love these goals i love this goal setting stuff so i decided to start setting more compelling goals so by now i'd left my legal career behind and was on my journey of self-discovery and doing new qualifications and loving it enjoying every part of what i was doing but the thing i couldn't do was get back on a bike and that was a barrier for me i always had been a cyclist um i just couldn't do it so i decided to enter a half ironman event and that involves 56 miles on a bike for part of that and I can't tell you I enjoyed it because I didn't, but that feeling of just that feeling, I guess, of finishing it and knowing the that achievement, I achievement, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I'm doing another one this Sunday. Um, oh well, I know I've not done as much training this time, but I'm going to do it and I will get through it. And yeah, so these things, and then I've just carried on doing these powerful goals and whatever anyone says about goal setting, it bloody well works it really does um and my my career by now when we roll on a bit further to, to 2019 so the start of 2019 my career my new business was going quite well I had regular stream of clients coming in and I was absolutely loving life you know everything about it I felt like I was 10 years younger and that such a weight had come off my shoulders after I'd had my accident my period stopped and I hadn't yeah. thought much about it. And I had spoken to my GP about it. And he said, look, with the amount of trauma that you've been through, it's likely that your body was, has just gone into, into shock and your periods have stopped. So I didn't think much of it. And then at the beginning, beginning of 2019, which was nearly two years after the accident, they started again. But this time, like nothing I'd ever experienced before, they were heavy. They lasted for a lot longer. Um, I'd have extreme bloating. I started noticing my mood being up and down. Um, my libido was affected. Lots of different sort of things. And I and and the brain fog, mm. you know. And, and I didn't know if this was to do with the fact that I'd had a head injury a couple of years earlier or something else. But I'd be halfway through a sentence and forget what I was talking about. And on one occasion, I was in the pharmacy picking up a prescription. And when they went to ask me what my address was. I was like, I don't know. You forgot your own address. I felt ridiculous. I was like, I know where I live, but I have no idea what my address is. So I felt totally stupid. And my daughter was with me, and now she's like 10. She had to tell them where we lived. It was <laughs> at least at least she'd remembered. She'd been taught yeah, um, she'd been taught taught to remember I, the address. I felt like I was losing my mind. I mean, I couldn't multitask anymore, whereas I'd always been good at multitasking, you know, I'm a female. Um, <laughs> and then as the sort of we went through the beginning of 2019 and I knew there was something not right I, a woman knows her own body so I went back to my GP and eventually I had a scan and um, I was called back a week later and told right we need to, you, know, you need to probably have some more tests done and I was a little bit concerned by it and my husband with his job he's got private medical cover and I just thought look I'm, can, do you think we could use your your private cover to find out what's going on? Because some mornings, I some days I would look like I was five months pregnant. The bloatedness was so much. Um, 
so anyway, I phoned them up and yes, I was covered and had an appointment that evening. And this was now July 2019. And he did a biopsy. He did examinations. He said, whatever happens, I think you should have a hysterectomy because you've got basically five growths inside your stomach that are the size of grapefruits. So that probably explained why I looked about five months pregnant. Um, and then the week after we were going on holiday and on the day we were going on holiday to France, I got told by my consultant that, you know, we're really sorry to tell you, but you've got stage three uterine cancer. Oh, wow. But I think because I dealt with my, my mindset by this point, do you know what? I didn't panic. I just said, okay, so what are you going to do about it? <laughs> um, and he said, well, obviously, I said, am I allowed to still go on holiday? Because we were literally just about to jump in the car and go to the ferry. And he said, yeah. He said, go and enjoy yourself. Have a good holiday. And we will do the surgery the, the, the couple of days you come back, which bizarrely was exactly 11 years to the day that I'd had a cesarean through the same area. Um, um, and I did. I went on holiday and my mindset was in the place of, do you know what? I can go away, eat lots and lots of French bread, um, drink lots of nice wine and, and ice cream. And then when I come back, I'll have lost about half a stone in a week. So, you know, that's uh, <laughs> the, the good thing is as well that you can eat all that French bread, but blame the bloatedness on uh, the cancer yeah. diagnosis. And no, it's I nothing know. to do with bread. That, yeah, I like that. That's brilliant. <laughs> I, so, yeah, I came back and... Within a week, I was back in, I was in hospital. I had a total abdominal hysterectomy. Um, and then I had to wait six weeks for the, the scars to heal before they could do what's called brachotherapy, which is internal radiotherapy. Yeah. And I was lucky because they said that the cancer was contained within my womb. Um, they thought a little bit had spread into my um, bladder and they had to cut out a little bit, a section of my bladder, but just stitched it back and, and I was fine. And I never once worried about what could happen. And, you know, my, my view on life is, well, we take risks every day, every time we get behind the wheel of a car, every time we step out into the road. And I just went into that mindset and I knew that this was not my time um, and that I was going to get better. And, you know, within five weeks of having that major surgery, I was back on a spin bike teaching, which maybe was a bit soon, but, you know, I'm a bit mad. Um, but what I hadn't, expected and what no one had told me was literally within days of having a total abdominal hysterectomy which means you have your ovaries removed as well I went into full-blown menopause and I was getting these hot flushes um I mean we'd get to about eight o'clock at night and I would be soaking wet and um, it'd be freezing outside and I'd say to my husband can you open the patio doors and he's there with a blanket up to here and I'm like oh my god um, <laughs> And it was horrible, but, you know, I know I was recovering from cancer and stuff, but I lost my libido completely and mm -hmm. found it really difficult to, to explain that to my husband because I didn't understand it either. Um, and even though I was still being active and eating healthy, you know, most of the time, I started putting on quite a lot of weight around my stomach area as well. And I didn't know why, and that was getting me down a little bit as well. So then I went back to all the nutrition training I did and decided to specialize in, in, they call it older age nutrition, but it's actually if you're 40 plus, which I don't consider to be older age. So I don't know um, if I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. Go away, not old. Um, and that was when I started learning about what foods you need to eat 
when you're going through menopause. Um, there's the, the different types of symptoms, the fact that you can't just go and have a blood test to determine if you're menopausal, which is why I now believe that those symptoms that I was having um, a few years earlier with the brain fog and the, the, the period stopping and the starting was all perimenopausal, which can start for quite a few years before you actually go into menopause um you know my hair would fall out in clumps so i really changed the way my lifestyle you know i changed the way i exercise although i was doing spin classes nearly every day i started adding more strength training in as well which because our when you go into menopause you you lose a lot of your estrogen you lose your muscle mass um and your stomach as well thinks that it needs to produce estrogen even though it can't and that stores all your fat which is why we put on more weight around our bellies. Okay. So it was just learning different types of foods to eat, but not being on a diet. I don't believe in diets. And also understanding the exercises. And, um, you know, me, I'm a firm believer now of HRT. So I was told I couldn't take HRT because I'd had cancer, but that was, that was incorrect. I can. Um, and in the last year, my, I've managed to transform. This is why I call it the joyful menopause i feel fitter healthier younger than i have done for 15 sometimes 20 years i feel great you know and i don't get hot blushes anymore i i've i've managed to tone up my 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 body shape which i'm happy with and my libido's come back and i'm able to explain that now as well and to my to my husband because a lot of clients i've had in in the last few years have been men Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've not, it's having that understanding, having that knowledge, why maybe your partner doesn't, you know, want to go to bed with you. It's not because she doesn't fancy you. She doesn't know it, understand it herself. It's all to do with this hormone imbalance. Um, and a I lot guess of there's also off the side of that, it's often, it's, it's not about the fact that maybe they don't want to go to bed with you. It's the fact that they just don't want to be with anyone at that point in yeah. time, because as I you say, libido is yeah, lost and it's not... That. Yeah, it wasn't that I'd look at another man and go, well, yeah, you know, I want to be with you. I just had no interest and I didn't understand it. But once I started making some small changes to my lifestyle, all of that was started to reverse. And, you know, I'm never going to be the perfect person, but who is? And <laughs> I, I don't know, think it exists. No, it doesn't. And that was, that was the thing. I think I had such high expectations of myself growing up and I think a lot of that was to because of the way I was brought up and then my swimming career always having to be at the top of my game I've now realized that you know what it's okay to be not okay and one of the things that my former line manager said to me was you need to remember that we're not human we're robots and I believed that for a long time but I feel sorry for that person that's the way they live their life and my values are very, very different to the way that I was brought up. I don't see success as being, as earning a six-figure sum and having the biggest house, you know, in the street. Um, for me, it's about having that balance of life. And, and as I said earlier on, waking up on a Monday, knowing that you're going to have a great day and every day is like that. And I can honestly say that's how, how I am. And the reason why I have those kind of two niches with my with my business is because... I understand now how important it is to have breaks. Mm -hmm. I've been quite busy myself recently with, with work. And up until a couple of weeks ago, I was starting to, I had to start saying no to a few things because I couldn't take on everything. 
And I started finding, noticing those triggers again. You know, I noticed my mood was getting a bit irritable and I was tired and I, my sleep was becoming affected. And, but I'm able to now recognize that and do something about it. So I made the decision to take a couple of days off this week because it's half term. And good weather as well. So good time to do it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I know. I was lucky. But, you know, by listening to those warning signs and, some people will say, oh, you can't take breaks. You know, you've got to work through, you've got to carry on. I find that when I take those breaks, even if they're just small breaks throughout the day, I come back feeling far more energized and productive and I get more done and better stuff done when I've done that. And I would say that to, to anyone, you know, you can't be that machine forever. Eventually, you know, like batteries, they run out. And so will you. And you've got to go away and recharge. Um, so I'm really excited about the future now. I mean, I'm a bit bit nervous about turning 52 in a few years' time because there seems to be this pattern of uh, 22, 32, 42. <laughs> but do you know what? I'll still be here and I'm thriving. Do you know what? It depends. You can look at it. There's, there's two patterns. There's the pattern of something happening, but there's also the pattern of you surviving and getting stronger. Um, so it depends which pattern you decide to look at. Yeah. As to whether or not you should fear or embrace it. Well, as I said, I don't really plan ahead anymore. I'm I'm all about living in the moment. But I I you know, it's just a standing joke now with, with me. I talk but you know what? I talk about my panic attacks now, as you can tell. I talk about feelings and thoughts and beliefs and let learning how to let go. You know, up until a few years ago, there were three people in my life who I struggled to, to let go of, who I struggled to forgive, who I felt had done me wrong in some way. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the only person that was still hurting was me. And mm-hmm. it would get me angry, frustrated, sad, all the negative stuff. And by learning to, to let that go and tell myself they could no longer hurt me, you know, they no longer served me, was such a, a weight off my shoulders. Um, and I know not not having those those thoughts anymore is is amazing because I'm I'm me and you know I decided that I could be better than that and actually a phrase I use now is you can either be bitter or better <laughs> and you chosen uh, you chosen the latter you chose to be yeah, better absolutely all day long it's incredible so no, I could I could genuinely listen to you all day um, I, I just don't want to interrupt you at any point and uh, I haven't asked as I haven't asked loads of questions because to be honest your story is so compelling there are so many different elements to it and there are so many lessons that people can learn from it um, I know that that's not your whole story too I know that there's more to it within your book um, and there's also more to more more places that people can find you so your book is coming out soon yeah, well, I've 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 had one book book published already, which um, went to which became a um, an Amazon bestseller um, in February this year, and that was a collaboration book called "The Girls Who Refused to Quit," Volume Three, um, and that's where I just write about one element of my story. But my second book, which will be out later this year, is called "Broken to Bionic," and that is pretty much everything we've just spoken about. But it's really it's it's it's, it's not a book about you know a pity party and being a victim it's about strength and resilience and I've written this book for people who are just like me but just a few steps behind and who want to have some hope who feel like giving up but actually do you know what there's always something else around the corner and that's what I'm hoping to be able to share with that book 
That's brilliant. And I think it's really important as well because not everybody gets to the stage that you were when you were lying on the beach. Um, and that's a really hard thing. I, I've not been through it, but I, I can't imagine how hard that is to go through. Yeah. But people do get to stages that are very close to that. They get states of depression. They also go through physical problems. They go through different mental problems. And I think to have somebody else's story to relate to and to see the things that are similar to them, the things that are different to them, I think can be really helpful. So yeah. it's definitely a book that um, when it comes out, because I already know a lot of the story, I imagine it's going to be a brilliant book alongside uh, uh, alongside that story. So I would suggest people, people buy. But for now, because the book's not out just yet, um, people might want to hire you for the other two key services that you offer. So where can people find you if they, if they want to either hire you or just to talk to you and to kind of chat with you a bit more about all of this kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I've got a um, I've got one Facebook group at the moment, which is which is called Streamline for Success. Um, and that one deals with sort of all of the burnout side of, of, of what I do. But then I've got a new one coming out in the next week called the Joyful Menopause, um, which obviously speaks Relates for itself. To, yes, um, yes. I've also got my own website, um, which you can find at um, www.mindset-in-motion co.uk um i'm also on linkedin um instagram and i do use twitter but don't ask me how to use twitter i'm hoping for that so, yeah, <laughs> but people could find you there if they if they uh if, if they if, if if that's their platform of choice but yeah, uh, they might yeah. not see too much from you on there no that's no, perfect no, no, no. um if you think of any more as well then we'll make sure we obviously put them on the show notes so that everybody can see them uh, we're gonna have to do this again at some point because uh, i've got so many questions that i want to ask you um but um for all of our listeners who are just meeting you for the first time today or some who already know you and for me this is actually my first first time meeting Shona as well and we met just before the call um it has genuinely been a privilege I've loved listening to your story I've loved hearing about all of the different things that have challenged you but more importantly the way you've come through them it's been incredible so all I would like to say is Shona thank you so so much for joining us here today thank no thank you Stefano this has been such a pleasure and having listened to lots of your stories that you've had on before I find them absolutely inspiring so being part of it is um, is such a privilege. Well thank you again go and enjoy I know you've got to get back to uh, to the studio so go (laughs) go and enjoy (laughs) go and enjoy the rest of your time there and uh, to everyone listening thank you. Wow what an episode that was. We're about to share our pup creation story, as has become tradition. But before we do, a little word on our friend Andrew Forp. His podcast, Leaning Forward, really is worth a listen. His knowledge and his storytelling lessons are invaluable. So please make sure you go and check it out. Respect your fellow human. Engage when you can. Answer every question. Create glass from grains of sand. Hold on to what you believe. Yield for those in need. Open your mind, it will set you free. Unlock your heart so you can see. Reflect, recharge, restart. Push the boundaries, make your mark. Obliterate fear, light the spark. Treat every day like it could be your last. Entertain and be entertained. Never give up. It's okay to feel drained. Take your time, there's a lot to gain. 
Invite your heart and your mind, they make a great team. Advise and be advised, but never blindly follow. Love, learn and live. It's your turn today, it'll be your turn tomorrow. You've just been listening to the Storytelling with Puck podcast. We'll be back very soon, so make sure you subscribe and catch up on any of the episodes you've missed.